Welcome to Private Club Radio, your weekly source for industry education, news and discussion. Broadcasting from Tampa, Florida, ladies and gentlemen, here is your host, Gabriel Aloisi. If there was one thing, just one thing that you could do right now, starting today, that's 100% absolutely free to put your club on a track for success, to get your membership engaged, and to get your staff invigorated, would you do it? I'm going to challenge you in today's episode with something that's easy to talk about, a little harder to put into practice, but if your club does it, you are going to see some incredible results. Our guest today is Lisa Hudiman of Black Diamond Associates. She's going to tell us what that is and what you can do at your club. Definitely stay tuned for that. Before that, we're going to be joined by Peter Nanula of Concert Golf Partners for another edition of Board Chats, where we'll chat with the former board president at Westlake in Augusta, Georgia. Very cool conversation we had there. Before we bring those gentlemen on, I want to remind you about two things that are happening. On May 22nd through 24th, there'll be the 2017 National Club Conference brought to you by the National Club Association. It's happening in New York City at the New York Athletic Club. There's a couple other treats happening that uh, I don't think I'm even allowed to talk about right now, but let me tell you, it's going to be pretty darn cool. If you want to register for that conference or get a little bit more information, it's nationalclub.org. Check it out. The other thing is that I want to remind you my book is coming out next month on March 31st. We'll be launching the Definitive Guide to Membership Marketing. I'm stoked because Greg Patterson of the Beach Club, former general manager of the Beach Club, has decided that he's going to write the foreword to the book. And I'm really excited to have Greg do that because if you've ever seen Greg, he is a super dynamic individual. He is really a shining light, a luminary in the private club industry. And to have him write the forward is just an absolute honor. So if you want to check that book out, it is membershipmarketingbook.com. Just go to that website. You'll be able to pre-order your copy, get a special price, and get it before anyone else has it in their hands. And now it's time for Board Chats, presented by Concert Golf Partners. A behind-the-scenes look inside real boardrooms with special guest Peter Nanula. Welcome to another edition of Board Chats, where we interview actual board members of equity member-owned clubs. They'll give us their real-world experiences sitting on club boards dealing with board strategy issues. This is your behind-the-scenes look into the boardroom brought to you by Concert Golf Partners who bring capital and operating expertise to preserve and enhance private clubs for the long term. I'm joined today by Michael Summers of Westlake in Augusta, Georgia, as well as Peter Nanula of Concert Golf Partners. Peter, how are you today? Doing great. How are you, Gabe? I'm doing very well, very well. So refresh our memories on about Concert Golf and what it is you guys do. Yeah, so Concert Golf Partners, we're um, a very well-capitalized firm that invests in private clubs to uh, you know preserve them and to enhance them, invest in capital projects, pay off their debt, that sort of thing. And uh, yeah, what do we do? You know, just most recently, we um, invested in a club in Philadelphia called White Manor Country Club, 
uh, top-notch golf course. Great club with a little bit of debt, kind of like Michael's going to speak about at Westlake Country mm-hmm. Club in Augusta. And we're now in the middle of making a bunch of improvements there. So that's what we do. That's exciting. Why did you want to bring this this segment to Private Club Radio, Peter? Why board chats? Yeah, Gabe. Uh, I've always found that the content on your show and in Boardroom Magazine and in the CMAA Magazine and others that I follow is very useful on the tactical items, HR, food and beverage, membership. There's a lot of good content out there. But I think the conversations I have with board members at private clubs, they're busy people. They have other careers like Michael. Uh, they're not generally spending all their time uh, in, in you know, private club industry trade shows or reading that sort of thing. And so trying to get, trying to get inside the boardroom and talk a little strategy with those people who are volunteering to help out their club I just thought would be useful. And so far, it's it's been a lot of fun. I've gotten a lot of good feedback from board members who listen in. We have two on the private club radio side. So thank you so much, Peter, for helping bring this to our audience. So we are joined by Michael Summers. He is the former board president at Westlake Country Club in Augusta, Georgia. He led a member process to inject fresh capital into his club. Michael, how are you today? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. Can you tell us a little bit about Westlake Country Club? Well, it's a 45, 48-year-old club now that was uh, started by a bunch of businessmen here in Augusta because they were waiting too long at the other country club that was in town at the time. Okay. So they decided to uh, found Westlake Country Club as part of a master plan community um, out in Martinez, or west western part of Augusta. And uh, that's where how Westlake came to fruition. Uh, of course, we've got the Masters Tournament here, so they were looking for a way to kind of tie that into um, how we operated the club. Mm-hmm. Yeah, perfect. And your own expertise, Michael, can you take us through your background? Well, I'm uh, 38 years. I've run a copier company uh, here in Augusta, Georgia. We've, uh, you know, it's about a $25 million company. We've got two locations, uh, one here and one in Columbia, South Carolina. And uh, we've been very successful with that. And uh, that's why, that's why I've made Augusta my home. Oh, beautiful. Beautiful. Well, what were some of the issues that you guys were having over there at Westlake? Well, it was in the late nineties, we did a, uh, the club needed to be updated and, and renovated. And, um, we went from a grandeur $11 million estimate to a value engineered $6 million renovation of the club at the time. And all the performers, uh, that we put, uh, based it on 500 golf members. Well, during that time, 500 golf members would have been low for, and we were running, you know, six, 600, 550 consistently. Wow. Well, 2008 happened and, uh, we started seeing some degradation. People weren't one joining the club and people were leaving the club. Um, so consequently what happened is, you know, obviously dues had to be raised and, uh, to, you know, just to maintain our debt service and, and the, uh, that sort of thing. Why do you think people were leaving, Michael? Was it, you know, that the facilities were getting overused or what, what was it? No, I don't, I don't think so. I think it was more economics and the, the family dynamics changed. Okay. You know, uh, I'm, I'm going to be 60 years old. I, I, when I was in my twenties and thirties, I wanted to join a club and be part of that culture. Mm-hmm. Well, now the, there's so many other things for the children to do and, and that sort of thing. And, uh, 
people were just getting away from spending $400, $500 a month just to be a member of a country club because right. heck they couldn't go play golf anyway. Cause sure. they had to take the kids somewhere. Yep. And I think that would kind of put in, and then the economy tanking mm-hmm. didn't help. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, well, that, that never helps. Does it? <laughs> uh, what led you to start thinking about bringing in an outside capital partner then Michael? Well, what was happening is of course, every year the dues had, had to, to inch up to cover operations. Well, at that time, uh, we couldn't, we'd had nothing for capital. Um, cause at that position, the, uh, initiation fees had pretty much gone away, which is what we'd always use for capital. Mm-hmm. So we come up with a due structure and then a, uh, capital assessment, if you would. And we use that capital assessment to, to help finance some of the things around the club. Mm-hmm. Well, every time we did a capital assessment, we lose a few more members cause they didn't want to pay anymore. And so the next year, the capital assessment had to get bigger. Um, and then by the time it was getting toward the end, 2012, 2013, um, those assessments we had to use for operations. Mm. So we were looking at, you know, uh, a full golf member, you know, have a dues increase every year, a capital increase every year, and their capital wasn't going to capital, it was going to operations. Right. Um, and that's when, when I talked with Peter. Wow. What other options were you considering in addition to Peter's group? There was a group of uh, members at the club that thought that they could generate enough interest to generate some money to, to keep it private. Mm-hmm. Um, but when it came down to talking numbers, you know, the, the 50 guys that they were talking down turned down to be about five mm-hmm. and that just kind of fell through. Sure. Um, we went through the process. We brought in, um, two other, uh, people like Peter's company, uh, to take a look at it and, um, created a vetting committee, which consisted of myself, um, uh, some other board members and non-board members to kind of vet the process between the different people Mm -hmm. that were interested in capitalizing Mm -hmm. our club. Sure. Peter, let me throw it over to you for a second. What about Westlake was intriguing? What was their secret sauce that you saw? Yeah. Um, you know, great golf course. If you go there, Gabe, if you're ever in town for the masters, please give me a call. We'll, we'll set you up. Uh, they've always had a fantastic golf course at Westlake. So good bones in that respect. They had a nice clubhouse facilities, tennis, swimming amenities. They had the whole amenity package that a modern club needs. I would say, um, uh, you know, they had the typical capital challenges that we're able to fix right there are some things we can't fix if you've got a club location that's too far out too small of a town and there's just never going to be enough affluent member candidates we can't really fix that right but they had all the amenities they had a fantastic golf course and getting rid of the debt we always do we pay it off and investing some capital like michael said to kind of finish off some capital projects at the clubhouse, golf course, pool, tennis. Now that's just a bunch of extra money that your typical equity club has trouble assessing for without losing 10, 20 members. And we'll just pay for it. Right. So it had fixable Mm -hmm. issues with Mm -hmm. good amenities. Right. Right. So Michael, what was the dynamics like in terms of the board? Did you have a uh, consensus on when you decided to go with concert golf? Was there some infighting? How did it go down? Well, we had to first get to the point where everybody believed that that was the solution was to, to bring in somebody like Peter's group. Mm -hmm. And what I did is after 
talking to Peter for the first time and he, he sent me this presentation. What I did is I, I pulled together a group of all the past presidents that were still members of Westlake. And we had, I, I bought them dinner. I said, come on and take a look at this mm-hmm. and, and laid it out all on the table. And I said, you know, am I missing something? Does this sound like something that we need to do? And to a man, to a man, and we're talking about guys that were member or presidents 20 years ago, said that this was a good deal, understanding where we were financially. Well, then the process, I took it to the, to the full board. Well, there was not everybody agreed that we ought to do that. Mm -hmm. You know, everybody was afraid of, uh, losing control of the club, uh, you know, just the, the myriad of things, Sure, but nobody could come up with a viable solution other than getting people to pay more. And we'd already gone through that and people were at a breaking point where they weren't going to pay more Mm -hmm. without getting something substantial. And, you know, like we did, uh, the cart pass, you know, we had a, a $800 assessment, but they got cart pass. They could deal with that, right. but getting a, a $250, $300 a year capital budget that wasn't being used for capital. Mm-hmm. That's when, that's when we had to do something. Yeah, I bet. I bet. So I bet it took some serious convincing. <laughs> what, what was your well, it, uh, recipe for that? It, well, it did. We had, we had a series of town hall meetings. Uh, with the with the members that wanted to come, and we had, and as we went through them, there was three of them, and uh, we kind of laid out the the options. One was, uh, you know, selling to a third party. One was trying to refinance it ourselves with another with an in house group, or, you know, we're just going to have to pay more dues and more capital assessment. We can keep it like it is, but you're going to have to pay for it. Right. And then once people realized that was what was going to happen. We had the people that thought that, uh, you know, concert or club corp or whoever was going to buy it and turn it into condos. Mm-hmm. Well, that, that wasn't practical. They were just kind of thinking, I don't know what they were thinking, but sure. that wasn't the way we knew that wasn't going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we did that vetting committee, like I said, and we vetted, we called other clubs that had been in each one of the, the company's programs and decided at the end of the day that concert was the one that best fit Westlake. Wow. So what were your biggest lessons from the process, Michael? One is, you know, who your friends are. Uh, (laughs) They're literally because, uh, you know, you, the difference between friends and acquaintances and, um, which that was a good time to find that out anyway. But once I was convinced that this was the way to go, I felt it was easy for me to portray it to my friends and other members and just be frank with them. And this is what's laying out. This is what'll happen. Mm-hmm. And to concerts credit that once the deal went down, bulldozers showed up and they, they redid our practice facility and they've re- redone our ballroom. Things happened quickly and people saw that happening quickly. So that kind of eased the angst that everybody had. Now, was it perfect? No, uh, I'll be the first to admit that, but we've worked through it. The concerts brought in some great people and the the membership is is being energized with young people, the people that we couldn't attract because of the new pool and because of the the new amenities and the and programs that are uh, towards families and whatnot. And yeah, I can come out there with my old guys and play golf at a great golf course. That sounds like the best of both worlds. So you've actually had a, a membership increase since that's all gone down. It sounds like. Yeah. Again, I'm not you know intimate with the details, but I know I see a lot of new faces. I'll say that. Wow. Wow. If there's another club out there in the country who's in a similar spot, 
and they want to make some capital improvements, they just don't have the budget and maybe their membership's dwindling, what would be your advice to them? My advice to them is one is to call people like me who's been through it. I know what they're going through and I can tell them how we did it and why we did it. Um, you know, I was, I run a copier company. I wasn't a country club manager and I didn't want to be a country club manager and having the professional management is what makes the club run, not having a bunch of businessmen who know how to count, you know, do balance sheets and income statements. Right. But we need people that can run the club the way it needs to be run. Fantastic. Well, Michael, I really appreciate you coming on Private Club Radio and sharing your story. And Peter, thank you so much as well, once again, for bringing this segment to us so we get a little insight of what's happening behind these boardrooms. Hope you gentlemen have a great day. Thank thank you, sir. Join us next month for another edition of Board Chats presented by Concert Golf Partners. I'm joined today by Lisa Hudiman, managing partner and co-founder of Black Diamond Associates. She is a certified business coach and author of The Value of Core Values, Five Keys to Success Through Value-Centered Leadership. After 20-plus years in corporate strategic business development roles, Lisa launched Black Diamond Associates in 2003 to help leaders transform themselves and their organizations to achieve the next level of success. Lisa has spoken to audiences across the globe, has coached executives in public, private, government, and nonprofit organizations, and is a contributing writer to 210 Magazine and Financier Worldwide Magazine. A lifelong learner, Lisa has a BBA from the University of Michigan and an MBA from the University of Tampa. Lisa, welcome to Private Club Radio. Thanks, Gabe. It's so so nice to be with you today. Yeah. So, Lisa, I want to start off today and just first address the subject, what are core values and why should a club or a business have them? That's a good question. It's a great place to start. The core values are those non-negotiable principles that guide the behaviors and the decisions of everybody in the organization. So they are those things that define and shape the culture of the organization. And it is going to be unique to that organization in terms of who do they want to attract and what kind of environment they want to create so that you have happy, engaged, loyal employees who are attracting and retaining happy, loyal members in the case of clubs. Excellent. So is this this is basically a set of principles or values that a club lives by. Would that be a good definition of it then? Absolutely. It's 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 reflected in the behaviors and it's reflected in the decisions. That's how you guide how you're going to live. Exactly. I know the first time I ever saw you, Lisa, you were giving a talk about core values. This was probably four or five years ago, and that's what really got me interested in the subject. What got you interested in the subject of core values? Well, it it seemed to me that there was a lot of press about companies that failed, executives that were going to jail, a lot of the failures of living values in uh, the marketplace. And that seemed to be what was getting noticed. And I knew that there were a lot of stories of companies and executives who live differently. And then I wanted to bring their stories to light because it seems that living your core values and profitability or sustainable profitability or sustainable business results are not diametrically opposed forces. 
they are actually one leads to the other. And that's the story that I wanted to tell. How do you disseminate these core values generally, Lisa? Do you um, write them out? How do you actually go about making sure that your staff and your members and other people associated with your organization know what these core values are and what they stand for? Well, there's a, there's a couple of things. The, the, but the very, very first step is that the leadership of the organization has to own the values. And and when I say that, it means that that they're not negotiable in their own mind and in their own lives, that they, when faced with decisions, are going to make the decisions based on this. And usually where the rubber hits the road is where money's involved. So if it's going to cost me money, then I might follow the, you know, the bottom line kind of a decision. Right. But if your core values are at stake, you don't, you don't dishonor them regardless of the cost financially, sure. because in the long run, it ends up being better for you. So let's, you know, let's step back to why this is so important. And then we can get into the how. Sure. Organizations are in business to attract and retain happy, loyal customers. So in the case of clubs, you're in the business of uh, attracting and retaining happy, loyal members. and in general, it's much more expensive to get a new member or to get new customers than it is to retain old ones. And that loyalty is, you know, they'll, they'll come and they'll spend more money with you. They'll play more golf. They'll buy more dinners. You know, they will enjoy the, the, um, the club and recommend others to join, et cetera. So that, that happy loyalty is a more profitable way to be. Sure. That's not possible if, within the organization, within the club, you don't have happy, loyal employees because it's those relationships between the employees, the staff, and the members that is going to drive that long-term relationship. So if you have disgruntled employees, if you have a lot of turnover, all of those things are expensive because people come to work and they either quit and forgot to tell you, and so they're not very engaged in the work they do. They don't treat people well. They don't go above and beyond to serve the membership. And so it's that happy, loyal employee base that is more profitable as well. Because we know turnover is expensive. Yeah, absolutely. It is. I have a story when my company was kind of nascent, just getting going. I had a client. He was my biggest client at the time. But he was an absolute jerk to one of my team members. And the first time it happened, I actually let it go. But the second time I said, no, I got I to gotta do something about this. Because one of my core values of my company is that we are professionals in the service of other professionals and we should be treated as such. And he broke that core value. And so I had to fire this guy. The interesting thing is, after I fired him, I actually found a client that paid me five times what he did. But beyond the monetary benefits, it, it showed my employee that I had their back. And it showed the other ones that worked for me that I have their back when they need it. That was my first lesson about core values really in practice. So do you have any other stories of companies that where money was on the line, had to make some tough choices? Oh, absolutely. Um, they're, they're one, of the, one of the companies that I write about in the book is a, uh, a marketing communications PR firm. And their um, creative director was you know, very, very talented, had enormous client relationships, but this individual violated their values and did so in a somewhat public way. Uh, it, and it was because it was so public, it wasn't something where they could just 
have that conversation because sometimes people make mistakes. So don't get me wrong. You're not going to fire everybody at the smallest offense. You usually want to coach people again, back to living these things. Mm -hmm. But in this case, it was very public and they had no choice, but to let this individual go. Mm -hmm. And it was, it was a very big risk because of the relationships that they had with the clients. Uh, But when they took it on the front end and went back to the clients and said, explain to them proactively, we're making this decision. This is why we, they, they publicize with their clients, what their values are. And they explained to the client that this is why we're doing it because these are so important to us. And it ended up being one of the easiest, difficult decisions that the CEO made as as she put it. Wow. (laughs) All right. Well, How does a club who maybe doesn't have a set of core values, how do they go about establishing a set of core values and identifying what those core values should be? The the approach that I take with with my clients is to talk about what what the future environment of the organization looks like. What, What would make this a great place to work? What are those things that we value personally And what are those things that are not negotiable? And you have good conversations among all of the leadership within the organization. Some organizations, we take it to the entire staff, you know, depending on, you know, the size, you know, if you have 500,000 employees, it's not as easy as it when you have 50, but you have those discussions about what do we really think are so important? And then you think about it for a while and then you look at what do those words mean and how is it going to define that future working environment and what would be some of the things that we would decide to do or not do as a result of it. And so you, you take this into consideration with your strategy because strategy and culture go hand in hand. You know, they, they say that, you know, culture will eat strategy for breakfast um, but you need both of them. It's, you know, a, a culture without a strategy is not good either. Mm-hmm. They go hand in hand. So there's that conversation that has to happen. Um, but then this goes into the next step of um, one of the questions you asked earlier is, how do you how do you share this? Well, you have to define the words in terms of behaviors because words have different meanings to different people. So if I say the word garden, what immediately comes to your mind? like an herb garden or something like that. Okay. So you could have an herb garden. You could also have a vegetable garden. You could have a flower garden. You could have the gardens of Versailles, mm-hmm. you know? Right. Uh, so there's, there's different images based on what an individual's experiences have been. Mm-hmm. And so we want to make sure that you have common definitions of these words. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the challenging things that we do when we talk about honesty. So honesty, what does that mean? Are little white lies acceptable in your definition of honesty? Hmm. That's a good question. <laughs> it's very philosophical, Lisa. It is, but it's important because you are ultimately going to be hiring and firing people based on their willingness to live by them. And so they have to be defined right. in a way that people understand what it means. Mm-hmm. You also define it in terms of what does it mean for different people within your organization. So if you're you know, um, a weight person in the restaurant, how does living this particular value uh, play out in your work every day versus if you're the general manager of the entire club? 
how would what will we expect from you in terms of behavior and living this particular value? And so it gets very, very personal as to what those uh, those values mean. Mm-hmm. And the reason this is so important is that you're going to be holding people accountable to it. Usually hold people accountable to their productivity goals or their tasks, right? Right. It's important that you accomplish your productivity goals and you accomplish your tasks. But if you do them and violate the values, it's not acceptable. Mm, that's right. That's absolutely right. Do you have any examples of kind of where to start some sort of a starting point that clubs could maybe take and run with? Yeah, I I usually have um, a different kinds of conversations. So when when you've when you've got a list of of those, those words that you think are core and common. And you know what? You don't want to have 15. 15 is too many to remember. And 15, you know, is there's usually going to be conflicts between them. And then mm-hmm. they, it becomes not core, mm-hmm. you know, th- those non-negotiables. And when you, when you have that conversation and you have the dialogue and discussion, and when you have the conversation about what the words mean, you usually can hone it down to, somewhere between three, five, seven, you know, it has to be a number that can be remembered. Okay. Um, okay. So you get that. And then the next step is to say, okay. Um, and I usually just do this with flip chart paper around a room, you know, and put at the top of the flip chart, each, each value that, that you defined Mm -hmm. and draw a line down the center of that flip chart. And on the left-hand side, have people write, what are the behaviors that, if we saw this, we would say that exemplifies this value, mm-hmm. you know, that we do honor this value when we do these things. And on the other side of the flip chart, you write, we don't honor this value when we, you know, so for example, uh, one of my clients respect was one of their core values. And one of the, the employees wrote, we don't honor this value when we show up late to work. Mm-hmm. And that was very telling of an issue that was going on within the within that organization. But it is also very telling in that you don't respect your coworkers, right. you don't respect your employer, you don't respect your customers if you're showing up late. That's true. Yeah, no, that's awesome. Are are they usually one word type things, or do you do you see sentences used? How how do you usually draft these core values? Sometimes they're phrases, mm-hmm. um, and and it, it's it's totally up. To the organization as to what's what's meaningful to them. Mm-hmm. So you you know you can Google different organizations and you can see some of them have have phrases. Uh, Zappos is one of the you know more famous. Uh, Tony Shea, their CEO, has written books about the yep. core values and creating that culture because they were very concerned about it as they grew that they wanted to maintain the culture that had allowed them to be successful when they were small, and you know so you know, creating wow, mm-hmm. um, or wowing the customer is one of their, you know, it's a phrase sure. and, and that image of wow was important to them. Mm-hmm. Um, celebrate your weirdness. You know, that's one of the, the, the values within was within Zappos. Now, what does weirdness mean at Zappos and how does that play out? Well, the finance department will have a kazoo parade through customer service and, that may or may not be something that's attractive to you, you know, and right. you say, wow, I really want to work there. You know, it's it's a something that allows you to attract people who share those values and want to work in that environment. 
Yeah, I love that. Google has some good ones. Have you ever seen Google's core values? They have some pretty, pretty awesome ones themselves. Yes, they do. I, I can't, I can't speak to them by memory. Yeah. Um, but I, I noticed that there are, um, and I've looked at others like Netflix is another really great organization for, that's being very value centered. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I find that it, it doesn't matter the size of the organization. If you are a one person solopreneur and you're about to hire your first employee, you need to know what those core values are that you want that individual to share with you because they're going to be making decisions and working with you and, and expanding, you know, what you would be doing yourself. Right. And that's what has to happen all the way down the line within every organization, Mm -hmm. that common shared ideal of what makes this a great place to work. Yeah, I love that. I have 12 of them at my company. And what I do is the when I first hire somebody, their first project, their first design project is actually to, to draft a poster um, for what our core values are, something that we would display above their desk or something like that. So that, that way it's kind of instilled in them right from the from day one when they started my organization. Have you seen anything similar like that where how, how do you actually disseminate that information to your new hires and your new employees? Oh, great question. And that actually, I love that example. I mean, that is, but, and that, you know what, that in and of itself is indicative of what your organization is like, you know, let's create something. Right. uh, (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yep. Yep. So, um, you know, first of all, it starts before you hire them, because if you are not screening your candidates based on the core values, then you're not serious about it. Mm Mm-hmm. And so part of that means that your hiring process has questions that get to the underneath, what do these values, these words mean to that individual? You know, how, how would they display them in their own life? Mm-hmm. What, do they, what do they think they mean in terms of behaviors? So would you and ask you a, a direct question like, what does respect mean to you, basically? Is that how yes. you go about it? Yes. Can you give me an example of a time when you failed to show respect? Mm-hmm. What what happened and what did you do about it? Nice. I like that a lot. I, I've never done that, but I think that would be super helpful to actually find out what people what people are made of and if they if they fit your team or not. Exactly. I mean, it's it's so, so important. Um, it's so much easier to teach a skill. It's it's not as easy to find that cultural fit because ultimately, you know, if if there's not a good cultural fit, the individual's not going to be happy, right? And it's going to pull down productivity of everybody around. And then you've got the bad apple for sure <laughs> that does for spoil. Sure. Yeah, spoils yeah, the bunch. Exactly. I always say that, that I can, I can, I can create, I can coach someone to become a great designer or a great marketer, but I can't, I can't instill passion in somebody or um, the the strive to be better or to learn. That those kind of things are ingrained in them, and and, and if they don't have that to begin with, then that's kind of how I sort of screen people, but um, I love what you're saying there. Sure. Um, you know, I, I had a, a client where honesty was one of their core values, and this was this is where it. This is back to you have to own those values. Um, the they were hiring somebody who was a very very good fit technically, you know, from the, their their credentials, etc. But they misrepresented the fact that they were still employed at their previous employer when they had been in fact let go. And now the reason they were let go was something that you could explain, but the fact that they misrepresented themselves 
Well, the the um, the the head wasn't a CEO; it was a a partner of this organization. Acknowledged that their explanation was okay, and so he went ahead and hired her anyway. And that was so destructive because it it just told everybody else in the organization that all the stuff we talk about with core values and honesty isn't really that important. Right. Yeah, that's scary. That's very scary. Yeah, I mean, you it's it's not negotiable. See, the worst thing you can do is do all of this work, define all these words, and then violate it. Right. So let me go back to your your question about what do you do with new employees. Well, one of the one of the organizations that um, I interviewed is a major hospital system, and they talk about the values very much in the hiring process. Thirty days after a new hire um, comes in, now this is a very large organization, so they they will bring that person back and say, "Okay, we've told you." that these are our values. How are we doing? They invite the new hire to tell them whether or not they're actually living those values or whether or not they need to um, improve on it. And so they're constantly soliciting feedback about what's going on in the organization based on the new person's perspective. And that's huge. you do have to you do have to write them down. You do have to have them visible. You, because if you don't communicate it, then you know nobody's going to know about it. But you don't just have them on posters. Posters are good, but not just that. Mm-hmm. They should be communicated consistently with decisions that are made. This is the values, and this is why we did this. Mm-hmm. Um, you're communicating them in your training materials. You're communicating them. On your website, you're communicating them. On your letterhead, you're communicating them. On your employee badges, you're communicating them anywhere and everywhere so that they're a constant reminder. Mm -hmm. And especially when you put them out there to the public, you're now inviting the public to hold you accountable to them as well. Yeah, (laughs) I love that. I have it right on my website, in fact. And I know the Ritz-Carlton, they give cards to, I think they're little laminated cards, and they, all the waiters and wait staff have them uh, right in their pockets when they're serving. Sure. And they empower the, um, the employees, their staff. They give them a $2,000 allowance, if you will, to spend money on, a, on, a, on a, a guest if they need to in order to honor those values. Yeah, to make it right. Exactly. I think Disney does exactly. something similar as well. I think all the Disney employees, uh, I think it's not, not quite as much as Ritz Carlton, but I think it's $50 if I remember right. They have that kind of a budget to make things right or to, to, to make a guest happy. Right. And so, I, I mean, you certainly don't want to, you know, give everybody carte blanche $2,000 to spend without training them, you know, and, and, and having, you know, everything else in line as well. So, um, so there's, there's that whole process. Now we talked about lean, just kind of recap. the cap. You have to own these values. You have to define them in terms of behaviors and you have to communicate what that means so that you can hold people accountable to it. And then you also have to look at the systemic things, you know, it, you know, do we have a value of putting the customer first and then have systems that are so focused internally that we're making ourselves so efficient that we're forgetting about the effectiveness, which is at least giving the customer what they want. Mm -hmm. So some of those examples are, you know, you call and what do you get? You get a machine and the machine takes you through a do loop where you have to, you know, 
hold. Yeah. <laughs> that, right? Customer service is not our number one priority if, in fact, that's what's happening. Right. Um, <laughs> exactly. Your call is very valued to us. Please wait yeah. 20 minutes and someone will be on the line. <laughs> doesn't really, exactly. doesn't really jive. Yeah. Right. And some of those systemic things, like one of the things that I loved was this grocery chain that I um, spoke with when, when they really talked about customer being first. They changed the design of their stores. So that, you know, usually going to the grocery store, where's the milk? Wow. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. It's, uh-huh. it's way in the back on the other it end. Is. Coast, right? <laughs> I think it's so they make you like walk through all the other stuff that'll make you hungry and buy. <laughs> exactly. Right. So that, that is one reason they decided that they were going to put milk on the end aisle nice. near the front of the store. Now think about that. It's more expensive because of, you know, what it costs to put that refrigeration there. Mm-hmm. But the second thing is. How many times do people just run into the convenience store because all they need is milk? Right. I do it all the time because I have uh, two little ones and they drink about a gallon a day, I think. <laughs> right. So, and it's a lot like more Every day I'm going to Publix. There. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So if by doing this, people would now run into their store just to grab the gallon yeah. of milk. Yeah, I would. That's a, that's an awesome example. I love that example. So how how often should clubs or businesses how should how often should they actually take a look at their own core values and maybe see if if what they're doing is is really living up to them? How often would you self-analyze that? Well, you you need to do it every day. Um now that that's the fifth thing. You know, the fifth thing is you have to honor them. And so you're constantly reviewing things based on those values. So uh, it's it's something that becomes a habit, but you still need to have those um, systemic things. So uh, again, the, the hospital system that I talked about, they put into practice very systemic things that allowed them to be reviewing this. So on your employees' um, performance planning, you're putting into place plans that that have not only you're going to get these things done and generate this revenue or you know serve these many patients or whatever it happened to be but you're also going to be living these values and there were qualitative goals at the same time the employees at the end of the year when you're having your performance uh, assessment the employees were assessing the organization mm-hmm. There was a, the form that said, here are our values. Here's what it means to live our mission. How well are we doing? Please give us feedback. So mm-hmm. there's a constant dialogue of feedback going on. They also uh, put in place, similar to what you would do with auditors, like large organizations have an internal audit staff to make sure that you are complying with accounting principles. And then you also have external auditors that come in and verify that you are complying with accounting principles. Mm-hmm. They put the same process in place as it related to living their mission and their values. They would have a an approach where every year they would have in either internal people who would go and look for examples. They, they would look for evidence that these values were being lived and find feedback for where there might have been um, opportunities for improvement so that they could continuously improve. Mm-hmm. And then every other year, they would have external groups of either shareholders, uh, community members, uh, in this case, that was the hospital. So they had uh, doctors who were a part of that team that was doing that assessment of Mm -hmm. whether or not they were living their values. 
And so it's, it becomes a very conscious thing that you know, I, I use the example, I, again, I use a lot of, lot of gardening examples, but most companies will create and have a list of values. Okay. It's part of every strategic planning process. What are our values? But then they just forget about it. So it's kind of like when I, I go out in the spring and I clean out all the dead stuff and I plant mm-hmm. new plants, you know, that's, that's that strategic planning weekend. You know, these are our values and I'm going to plant them. Right. Then I don't water them and then I don't pull the weeds and then I don't, you know, and within months it starts to, it starts to crumble around me and, and it's, it's not looking so good anymore. If I don't go out every week or every two weeks, and if I'm not watering those plants every week, if I'm not pulling the weeds, the weeds will take over. That's right. You have to always be looking at it. You can't just do it annually. Right. Yep. I love that, Lisa. I love that. Well, uh, we got to wrap things up. Unfortunately, I wish I could go on all day with you because I love this subject. And I think it's, it's, so, it's so needed in a lot of organizations. But Lisa, if folks want to work with you or reach out to you, how do they do that? Well, uh, the value of corevalues.com will give you access to my website. Um, and I can be reached at Lisa at the T-H-E hyphen black, B-L-A-C-K hyphen diamond, D-I-A-M-O-N-D dot com. So Lisa at the black dot com with hyphens <laughs> and <laughs> Um, and I, you know, I really just want to sum it up by saying, you know, the value of living your core values does play out financially. It is a more financial way, but in a qualitative way, it's just a better way to live. And it's not something that is a lot of effort without a lot of return. There's an enormous return, hence the value of core values. Thank you so much, Lisa. Thanks for joining us on Private Club Radio and sharing your wisdom with us today. Thanks, Gabe. It's been a pleasure. All right. So you have your homework from me this week. If you don't have a set of core values at your club, really, really consider putting some together. And if you already do, take a look at what you've been doing. Make sure that you're doing the proper things and living up to those core values in your club. I'll see you back here next week on Private Club Radio. And until then... Here's to your membership success. Private Club Radio is brought to you by the Private Club Agency, the premier marketing and consulting firm dedicated to helping clubs increase and retain their membership. Visit privateclubagency.com to learn more.